Score, the podcast. The only show taking you inside the studios of the world's most celebrated composers and musical storytellers. Presented by Spitfire Audio. I am Kenny Holmes. Hey, I'm Robert Kraft, and we have some incredible characters with us, including the magnificent composer Carol today, who just did a blazing rendition of Jai Ho online, which just thrilled me. And we also are very lucky to have with us all the way from down the street, down the street, (laughs) MASH Raider. Hey, yeah, it was uh, quite a trip. Quite a trip for me, but I'm so glad that I made it. This is Score the Podcast presented by Spitfire Audio, but the longest intro in the history of our our series. I think we're done. We can go right to the show. (laughs) We've used up all our time. We've got a big show today. Big show today. Big guest. Another guest joining us from the UK. He's an Emmy and Golden Globe nominated composer for films like Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, Yesterday, Motherless Brooklyn, The Man from Uncle, King Arthur, Legend of the Sword, Steve Jobs. Steve, Steve Jobs? It's like a French film. Uh, and he also scored a really interesting episode of Black Mirror called USS Callister. Daniel Pemberton oh, coming yeah. on the show. Uh, so cool. We've been wanting to have him on for a long time, too. There's this. I'm telling you, this season has been great because we've had all these guests joining us from the UK. And oh, this season's been mm-hmm. so great. Pemberton is so creative and every score is so unique and he really... He really goes outside of the box on everything, so I'm excited to see what he's like. Never met him, and uh, we'll see what uh, what's going on in his head uh, coming up later on in the show. And uh, as we mentioned as well, Matt Schrader is joining us. Big day for you, Matt, and uh, the Blockbuster team. Yes, Blockbuster is out today, the, the first episode. Uh, it's uh, Blockbuster, the story of James Cameron. So we have a 10-part a original series, dives into James Cameron's early career um, and uh, leads into his mid mid to late career and uh lots of james horner in there too so it's uh it's a really really fascinating story that we've been working on for like nine months so uh it'll be un unveiling unrolling um over the next uh 10 weeks and we even have a lot of the bonus interviews um the first season Mm. of blockbuster i spoke to a lot of people in doing research but we didn't record it and this time I recorded it. So I have conversations with people that are like high school buddies, college buddies of Jim nice. Cameron, plus other people that we'll meet later on down the line. Um, someone that Robert uh, worked with at 20th Century Fox um, during the Titanic years. So a lot of this story will be familiar to Robert, uh, bring back maybe some uh, some some trauma from the uh, panic about Titanic. I'm still the Titanic from- panic. Post-Titanic stress disorder, PTSD. <laughs> is so. Robert in the series? Is he like, hey, not, gents, not directly. it's me, If Robert. this is the James Horner story, he would be. Uh, but nice. uh, but no, but Robert's boss is, or was. Yes, I had so several. He will. Um, oh, that's good. And uh, that was some incredible time. Matt, I haven't had a chance to ask you, did you have to build like an enormous boat to give this some authenticity. A replica? Yeah, yes. it was a or replica. Did you, did you have to yeah. shoot in like a huge outdoor water-filled set? 
Yeah, yeah, we built a tank, so we recorded it all on a giant tank in uh, Mexico. Actually, you just Um, needed the sounds of these things. That's all it really was. Yeah, it was maybe overkill a little bit. We made it look really good, too. That's uh, great. You know what? Authenticity (laughs) is key. We're going to ask Matt a little bit more about Blockbuster and dive into what types of things are covered in the story a little bit. But first, we want to take a moment, as we always do, to thank our Sponsor, Spitfire Audio, maker of orchestral virtual instruments for film composers, many of the uh, composers that come here on the show every week. And Spitfire has two new editions of their best-selling BBC, the British Broadcasting Company, BBC Symphony Orchestra, including a Discover edition. It's a whole symphony orchestra at your fingertips, and it's just 49 bucks. I don't know what that is in British pounds, but I'm going to... Say that if you quid. send them four f- quid, exactly forty nine right. quid. If you, send, if you send them forty nine American, uh, <laughs> they're going to send you this this entire symphony orchestra. And if that's out of your budget, they have an incredible deal. Where you just fill out a form online on the Spitfire website, and you'll get it free in two weeks. We also want to mention Spitfire's new Composer magazine. You can see inside John Paisano's studio. With a tour alongside Christian Henson, they even have some really cool detailed photographs all throughout Hans Zimmer's studio, which if you haven't seen inside there, uh, we shot in there for uh, the documentary. It's one of the coolest spaces uh, that you could work in, and it's it's kind of creepy. There's little skulls and dark. It's dark and red. Hans really drawing some inspiration from... Uh, a cool space. So a lot to look at. Check out Composer Magazine. And most importantly for our listeners, have we got a deal for you. 20% off your first purchase. It's good on well over 50 different Spitfire libraries. You just use the promo code SCORE2020. That's all one word. And it's a limited time offer, so you got to get in there right away. Use SCORE2020 to elevate your music and stick around after today's show we're going to play a cue created using the oliver arnold stratus package it's super cool nice nice all right let's get to it matt so blockbuster it's been a long time coming i've known a little bit about it i did a little voice work with you uh yeah what in january something you'll like hear that? kenny in episode one Ooh. that that is yeah a reason to but i will say right i haven't there. listened yet i haven't listened to any of it you kept it secret from Nobody me. has. Last season, yeah. you played me, I think you gave me the first five episodes before it, before it released to, to buzz through it, and I was lucky to be able to binge it all at once, but um, mm-hmm. I'm excited to listen as a normal person now. Yeah, we're still working on uh, the last couple episodes. Um, the music plays a, a huge part in this. We worked with a composer named Fernando, uh, Fernando Arroyo Lascarain. Um, who's done some work, um, some some shadow writing for some bigger projects uh, in the past and also worked with some really big name composers. Um, and uh, he has written like two and a half hours of music for this whole series. It's, you know, more than you would get in in a Star Wars film. And um, and it's it's amazing. So um, obviously the the very end of all this stuff is what we're working on now. But um but it's it's a much more musical story this time around, um, and each episode we're really trying to bring the storytelling um, through 
uh, with the music and and allow kind of the sound design that that Peter did, who worked on score. That's how we met uh, Peter Bobbiets in the first place. Uh, so he's kind of overseeing all the sound design of this stuff. Um, and then bringing that all together with the music and how all of those things can kind of cross over. Um, and a lot more, I'm really excited about all of our voice actors we worked with. Ross uh, Marquand, Ross Marquand from The Walking Dead, and um, he nice. was in Avengers Endgame too, um, as Red Skull, and he is our James Cameron. And he was just great because, like, uh, several points throughout the season, um, I'm sitting across from him as we're recording these things, and I I swear it's it's actually Jim Cameron. Um, he just nice. did such a great job of kind of bringing that on. So we're really excited. All of our we have seventy something roles in this season, so it's a much much bigger season, ten episodes, and uh, and there's a lot going on from Terminator to uh, uh, you know all the way through uh, Titanic, and then what what comes in Jim's life even after that. Well, for our listeners who haven't checked out Blockbuster, we we started referring it to as a movie for your ears. But can you explain a little yep. bit about the genesis of how this idea came about and then um, how you decided to choose James Cameron to to do your second season? I know there's so many ideas floating around and, and so many people yeah. were asking, who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? Why did you choose James Cameron? Well, the first season that we did came on i think because of score and um when we were putting together score the documentary there was this section with john williams um and we started to kind of i i learned a little bit about john williams history and working with steven spielberg and george lucas and how they all met and this interesting friendship between spielberg and lucas so that's what season one is about is that kind of creative um uh, friendship and support that they developed during the invention of the blockbuster um, with Jaws and then Star Wars. And uh, this season we pick up it's it's a different storyline. It's self-contained, but it picks up right at the end of that one. And the first episode you'll hear James Cameron going to the movie theater, the Chinese theater in Hollywood, the same one George Lucas sat across from and uh, was eating a burger at that hamburger hamlet. And we had mm -hmm. that scene in thinking his career was over. Yes. And uh, the same Memorial Day weekend. And Jim Cameron and his buddies go and watch Star Wars there. And Jim comes out. He's 22 years old. He's a truck driver. He's making four bucks an hour um, and <laughs> completely unfulfilled. And he says, Jeez, we gotta we gotta get it together. We gotta go make a film now because everything's gonna pass us by unless we go try to do this now. So he and his buddies, um, of which uh, Kenny plays one of them, Bill Wisher, and uh, they go and shoot a short film and then say, "All right, this is gonna be our calling card. We'll try to flip this into making you know a real movie after this." And uh, a lot of things go wrong in that process, and Jim really has to figure his way out and ends up uh, landing a gig with Roger Corman, the the uh, famous producer who did all kinds of really, really low-budget uh, B-movies um, that were kind of in the sci-fi realm. So Jim ends up working at a place that was known for knocking off Star Wars and other films like that that were big hits. <laughs> hey, Matt, that sound, sounds amazing. I mean, I listen, I can't wait to hear some of the inside, inside stories of a couple things that I certainly worked on, but I didn't get deep into the drama of what was going on. I know there was always drama, particularly with two very powerful, creative geniuses, Jim Cameron and James Horner. 
Yep. And uh, so I'm and you'll to see hear that. James Horner won't make an appearance until next week's episode that comes out. Um, you'll hear him in the next episode, as will uh, a few other people, including Bill Paxton. Uh, oh, nice. It's the same situation. Jim hired him at uh, Roger Corman's studio and to be a painter. And uh, Bill Paxton ends up being, you know, this this one of the great actors over the next couple decades and starring in several of Jim's films and then many, many more after that, too. So it's a it's a really interesting story of a, a different type of film pioneer, but someone that obviously has this trajectory where he's he's, uh, you know, James Cameron is looking for greatness in everything that he does mm-hmm. and uh, and fails many times and uh, and and eventually has this enormous opportunity with Titanic. So we're we're tracing all of those journeys and and the struggles along the way. Did you know James Cameron was going to be the pick right away, or how long did it take you to to realize that we're we're doing season two on Jim Cameron? Um, it took a little bit of figuring out because I think there's a few other. I mean, it's really interesting what Spielberg and Lucas do next with the whole Indiana Jones series. Um, that that is uh, something that I think is really interesting too. Um, but no, I mean, I I thought that the fact that Jim Cameron's entire journey as a filmmaker literally starts with seeing star wars and that's what it gives him you know the 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 initial uh push to say i gotta go make a movie um otherwise i'm gonna miss my opportunity to even be in this industry and he does that as he's walking out the doors of the chinese theater and talking to his friends on the sidewalk and it's just it's such a perfect place for this next great filmmaker's journey to begin um, so it was too mm. perfect to, to you pass know what out. I love about what I love about Blockbuster and even just similar to what we learn on this show is it opens up the eyes and ears for people that working in the film industry isn't rich people and everything is perfect and everything is great. Like you really get a sense of the struggles and, and the hard work that goes into it. And it, it really opened my eyes just listening to blockbuster. I mean, you knew some of those stories in the first season, but you know, hearing what John Williams went through with his wife passing away and sort of moving on to that next step, just, just understanding the human stories involved with uh, a lot of these great pieces of art that we all know and love, but we don't know what went into them. And, I think it's just really cool that you you use this platform to tell these stories in a really immersive way. And we have a, a trailer here that uh, Matt has provided us, so you can get a little glimpse of uh, Blockbuster Season 2, the story of James Cameron. Check it out. Blockbuster, the winner of Adweek's Creative Podcast of the Year, returns. Film is a hobby, not a career. I know, Dad. James Cameron. A movie for your ears. James what? Me? No, 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 no. This isn't what I envisioned. It's a bad idea, okay? About the world's most ambitious filmmaker. It has to be perfect. Just say, I'm the king of the world. What? Why would I yell that? Blockbuster. Get it wherever you get your podcast. Yeah, so as you can tell, I'm uh, I'm pretty excited about uh, this whole season. It's been a, a lot of work, but uh, we hope that you enjoy episode one and uh, we'll have it for the next nine episodes after that a whole whole season a lot more than we did last year and uh and it's really really immersive so um 
uh, I'm excited for you to hear some of those experiences that are part of the most famous movies of all time, most famous experiences of all time, and that shaped, you know, arguably, the, you know, the most visionary uh, director that continues to invent these crazy ideas for things. You even see that now with him shooting, what, four different Avatar movies at once. So it, it's someone that totally thinks outside the box and puts everything into um, what he's trying to make. So it's a, it's a really powerful thing. I think everyone involved in this, we, we were able to take our time and make it right. Robert, do you have a good Jim Cameron story? You guys spent some time together. It was interesting, Matt, when you were talking about Jim and thinking outside the box and how creative he is. Uh, I can't... Titanic and Avatar were both unbelievable experiences to work on. I can't deny that. I was lucky to be at Fox when we were doing both those pictures and the music for both of them was was a career in itself, getting that done. Um, when we got to the scoring portion of Titanic, I mean, getting to that moment was a challenge because Titanic was so hard to make. But it turns out Jim was so deep into editing, we were trying to make a release date. And so we were with James Horner in the recording studio at Todd AO, which uh, is no longer a place that's used for recording scores. And Jim, I guess the night before we were about to start recording, said, I cannot edit the film to make our release date and attend the orchestra sessions. So what I'm going to do is set up uh, a system in my house tonight so that James, uh, when you are conducting and recording the orchestra, I can watch while I'm editing. I'll set up a monitor in my editing room in Malibu. And the entire two weeks of recording that score, um, Jim sat in this kind of awesome throne room chair. It was a big chair with a microphone kind of coming around to the front of the chair and watched uh, a lot of the sessions and then okay and so there was a monitor in the studio with Jim Cameron over the console watching us watching us record and it was just <laughs> the wizard a little bit, of Jim yeah right kind of gods in the house and of course he was editing a lot of the time so yep. that chair that was very well lit I always remember was empty sometimes during a queue and we'd have to say to this empty chair um Hello, you there, Jim? Did you hear that? And you'd hear from off screen. Yeah, man, I I heard it. I liked it. Or I heard it. Can you go again? I want it to be a little more such and such. But we basically recorded for the approval of this chair on a little monitor. And had anyone ever done that before? It was really the first time I'd done something that became very routine, which is Mm -hmm. directors not available to attend the scoring session because they're in post. Um, and so to answer your question, I don't think so. I was very accustomed to the director being in the room for every note because that's what they do. But as movies became more and more post-production intensive, directors would say, man, I'm at the FX studio all day today. You guys do the score. Mm. Plus it accompanied uh, demos for scores had gotten so sophisticated that in some ways they'd heard the score already. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and now we're all, we're doing everything by, I was going to say Jim Cameron, <laughs> another 20, way, 25 Jim's years ahead entertainment. of the, 
of the game here. It <laughs> yeah. took us a while to set up our podcast. He did it in the 90s across uh, <laughs> right <laughs> thousands of miles. That's yep. crazy. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to Blockbuster Season 2. And if you haven't listened to Blockbuster Season 1 yet, what are you doing with your life? Go check it out. Uh, the first episode's out now. But uh, don't listen yet. We have a great show coming yeah. up as well with After Dan- this Daniel show. Pemberton coming up. Um, we do want to tell you real quick, though, there's been a lot of movement uh, with some of the big films that were yeah. expected Speaking this of year. blockbusters. Some of which are shifting around to 2021. Some of are... Some are switching dates around in in weird ways. Um, Here's just a couple of the the headlining films. Uh, Tenet has moved to July 31st, which uh, pushed back two weeks. Um, It was originally, I think, was it supposed to come out in July? July 17th. Yeah, okay. So that one pushed back two weeks. Uh, Top Gun Maverick is coming out around Christmas, and it was supposed to be out uh, June 24th. Wonder Woman 1984 is now listed as October 2nd. It's moved a couple of times. Uh, this is interesting. Godzilla versus Kong moved to May 2021. May 2021. It was originally supposed to come out on November 20th. And with that, the new 007 film, No Time to Die, moved up five days. So you're going to be able to see that one five days earlier. Now, uh, they took the November 20th spot. <laughs> what a mess. All of and, this is. and matrix four moved to April, 2022. So back almost a year. Um, yeah, I don't even know what to, to make of these dates. I kind of just, am not taking them to the bank cause they're so uncertain, but it's, it seems just a mess. I mean, they don't know. No one knows what to expect. The big one is tenant. Is, you know, are they I, I asked Robert as soon as we heard about them shifting two weeks. Is that enough? Are they planning on two weeks being enough for uh, for people to come back to theaters or, you know, whatever they need to do? And maybe it's a creative thing. Um, they're finishing up the last bit of something. And this is an opportunity to make something right in the film. We don't really know. Everything's so secretive. But we don't um, know. It's but um, that's going to be a huge movie whenever it comes out. Yeah. And I could definitely see them wanting to be at the very start of, you know, people starting to come back to the theaters and then boom, here's this massive movie well, that people it'll be a for. historical moment if they do it and yep. it works out because this will go down as remember when everything shut down and then Tenet came out and saved movie theaters by coming out and, yeah. and proving that it works. Yeah, I think you're right. It will also be a historical moment. And needless to say, I wouldn't wish this for anybody, including that movie with a filmmaker and a composer, both of whom I love and wish only success, and a lead actor, really excited about Tenet. Um, but it would be historic as well if it comes out July 31st. And as my mother used to say, Smarty had a party and nobody came. <laughs> so if, if it doesn't pay off. I'm going to steal that. If it was for the next season of Blockbuster, if it was silent in <laughs> the, the story of movies. Smarty, <laughs> he had a party. It's <laughs> a good movie idea. Um, so if it's but yeah, it's there's no way to prove anything. That's going to be historic, too. And that's going to send a real chill through the film business if Tenet opens. Yeah. And it's l- underwhelming. So but we'll see. There's definitely a well, gamble. And did you see yeah. what they did too? to they moved it back two weeks, but. I think they're doing like a a test run at theaters with Inception. 
um, yes. which is interesting. Yes. So they're basically giving themselves two weeks to see if people are actually going to show up. And it happens Correct. to be, what is it, the 10-year anniversary of Inception on that already? Right. Yeah. Yep. So I don't know what whether it was a high-level person or an intern or who noticed that that could work out as a cool idea, but it's pretty smart to say, why don't we see, let's test the waters here and see if anybody shows up. And I think before... Before we uh, go to our show, I can tell you that whether it was a high-level person or an intern, I guarantee you as the sands of time stream through the hourglass, the boss will say, it was my idea. That's one (laughs) thing I learned in show business. Uh, When in doubt, give it to the boss. But uh, we'll see. A couple weeks coming up. and uh, Yeah. Would you go, Robert, would you go to the movies right now? I know they're no. fluctuating with like capacities and and all the different things. So it's it's interesting. It's I an interesting question to know. ask everybody. A- ask me on the night of July thirtieth before the thirty first. I'll tell you that I really want to see Tenet. Super interested to see it. Um, so it's yeah. If there's six any movie that away. might have the ability to to bring people out, it's going to be that one. A lot of yep. the uh, there's are sequels that are highly anticipated, but. You know, it's the whole, it's the Christopher Nolan magic. I think James Cameron, if he had something coming out, he could maybe be on, on equal footing there. But, um, but yeah, it's all about that big spectacle story. I just had an idea that we are going to pursue with great <laughs> vigor. We are going to have a score the podcast screening of Tenet where we buy out. Come on, work with me here. We're going to buy out a room in a multiplex. We're going to count the seats and divide by six. How am I doing so far? And (laughs) we're going to have a contest on who gets the, I don't know how many seats could we get in there? Maybe 12 viewers or 15 viewers all sitting four or five seats apart. And, um, Kenny, Matt, and Carol, you will pay for it, and I will make the introductory remarks where I stand in front like they do in those theaters and say, we hope you're all comfortable. I'm glad to come to the show. That will be my contribution. You guys go and buy all the tickets out for like a midnight showing, score the podcast. Who's in? Who wants to write a letter right now? Sounds like five pounds of cheese. (laughs) <laughs> it could be five pounds of cheese, but it'd be kind of cool. <laughs> Maybe we'll just go with the the better idea. Let's do a an official score of the podcast screening of Inception at your own house, and you can stream it on your couch. And uh, I'm sure it's on Netflix or something. And on that note, don't we have an amazing show coming up? Should we talk about the? Uh, this is a great one, guys. Yeah, mm-hmm. our composer. Yeah, Daniel Pemberton. Uh, he blew me away with the Into the Spider Verse score last year. That thing was oh, amazing, yeah. and and then and then he follows it up with Motherless Brooklyn and Yesterday, which are, comp- as you mentioned, Robert, like you wouldn't know these are the same composer working on on these films. It's he's got such range. Oh, oh. no! Is that? My mailbox, mailbox just... We have something in the mailbox. There's like <laughs> smoke coming out of the mailbox, a little explosion in there. What happened? What'd we get? We have a message in from Fenton Huston. Doesn't say where Fenton is from. Uh, he says, absolutely love the show. We're coming up on five years since the tragic death of James Horner, who we were just talking about. Um, he had a very distinct musical style that influenced me a lot, both as a film enthusiast and composer. And his question... 
Do any of you have a personal memory of him and his music that you would care to share? Or did a score ever have a significant impact on you? Robert, I think this is a good question for you. Mm-hmm. Man, so many memories of working with James. He was unique. I'll tell you the first thing that comes to mind was a request that he made when we were doing Avatar. Um, James usually composed at his home. Um, and uh, he had a small studio in his home. And that's where he did a lot of the work. But for Avatar, we actually looked at the budget, and he said what he wanted to do was carve out a small portion of the budget. I thought it was a unique idea to rent a space that was completely separate from his house. He didn't care really much about what the space was. He wanted it near his home, and he wanted to make a very dedicated Avatar synth room with a lot of synths and samplers and room for some computers with libraries of sounds and odd sounds because he wanted a very dedicated space to invent a score that was unique to the world of Avatar. And, um, you know, usually in a budget you have sort of rentals and orchestra fees and all that. I don't remember ever putting on, uh, you know, a, a separate rental for a, a house and that's what we ended up finding a house near his house that was for rent for a couple months we just put him in there and he went every day um he didn't want it to be a permanent place he just wanted a kind of separate rental place to write the avatar score which arguably one of my favorite scores so it worked out it was just a nice moment where he came to me and said this is going to sound odd but i want to rent a separate place to set up purely for avatar and then break it down afterwards and you made it happen and we really i not only made it happen i got a hammer some nails plywood and started to build that That is that is heroic it was you're a craftsman i am a craftsman thank you i got my craftsman tools Uh, thanks for the question, Fenton. If you have a question for the show, send it over. Score the mailbox at epicleft.com, E-P-I-C-L-E-F-F.com. We'll try to get to your questions, and maybe you will make an appearance right here on the show. Wow, We're going to take that- a quick break. Uh, Matt, thanks so much for joining us in the block of the show today. Go check out Blockbuster. Um, thanks, during guys. the break here, we're going to play you the full trailer of Blockbuster oh. Season 2, the story of James Cameron. And uh, coming up after the break, we're joined by Daniel Pemberton. Stick around. We'll be right back. James Cameron, you have been targeted for termination. What? What? Me? No, no, no. No, no, no. Ah! Oh, no! Are you kidding me? That was a dream. Oh, that was a dream. The winner of Adweek's Creative Podcast of the Year returns. I'm just saying, Jim, why don't you go back to college? Get your degree. I don't think that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Blockbuster, the story of James Cameron. This just isn't what I envisioned. It's a bad idea, okay? You are fired, Jim. I'm, I'm fired. It's time to look for another career. And the pressure to prove himself. Arnold. This line. Huh? It's feminine when I say that I'll be back. 
leveraging everything. Why would you do this? This is my profession. It's my movie. Jim. Hey, Derek, you stay out of this. Hell, the hell? Where the hell's going on? To achieve something titanic. It has to be perfect. Leo, just say, I'm the king of the world. What? Why would I yell that? A new 10-part original series. Whoa, whoa, we're still dropping. Ah, damn it. I caught it, Jim. Holy, talk to me. I got it, Jim. You don't got it. I got it. I got it. What do we do? Blockbuster. The story of James Cameron. Binge season one of Blockbuster now, wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, SCORE fans, it's Kenny. We are stoked to be back for Season 3, and we couldn't have done it without your support. Be sure to connect with us on social media for the latest guest announcements, video clips, industry news, and more. You can find us on all the social platforms. Twitter is at SCOREThePodcast, Instagram at SCOREMovie, and Facebook at SCOREMovie, or you can just search SCORE, a film music documentary. Also, please remember to click subscribe on your podcast app. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, leave us a short review. It helps more people discover the show. All right, enough business. Let's get back to it. Hi, this is Chung Jail. You're listening to Score, the podcast. And now let's go back to the show. Welcome back to Score, the podcast presented by Spitfire Audio. We are very, very excited for our guest today. Another uh, guest joining us from the UK. This, uh, this weird time we're in has given us an opportunity to connect with some of our uh, favorite composers across the pond. He is a Golden Globe and Emmy-nominated composer for uh, many, many great films. Last year's uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse and Yesterday, also Motherless Brooklyn. And um, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse 2 is coming soon, we know that. Also, King Arthur, Legend of the Sword, Steve Jobs, so many great ones. Daniel Pemberton joining the show today. <laughs> Daniel, how are you, man? Uh, yeah, I'm all right. I'm just here working away, still working. Like, doesn't seem that different. I just, uh, you know, uh, stuck in my room working on things over and over again. Global I wonder, hasn't are you used... Are you used to having someone else in the room with you? And is this solo venture different? No. Are you sort of comfortable enough with tech that you don't need three guys that are standing by to, uh, you know, can you plug this in deal? No, no, I'm doing, I mean, I've always just done stuff myself at home. It's just, I, I find it very hard to write with other people in the room. I actually find mm. it quite good. So this is kind of normal for you then? Yeah, yeah, it's super normal. This is just like everyday, you know, just kind of what i do all the time anyway just there's like suit it's like london's really quiet and chill so mm. like it's actually quite you know guiltily it's quite that aspect of it is quite nice for me i saw an interview with you where you mentioned the neighborhood in london that you're in 
which yeah. I wasn't familiar with, but sounds like one of those super hip uh, neighborhoods that has become more gentrified recently. Somebody asked you, is it called Bermondsey? Bermondsey, yeah. Yeah, Bermondsey. it's become... Yeah, it's like near London Bridge. It's like, uh, if you know, like London Bridge and Tower Bridge, which is the one that goes up and down right. in between those. But like, I've lived here for like 20 years and um, it's got, like when I moved here, like what's interesting about right now is it reminds me of when I first moved here when it was super quiet and there was no one around. Now there's like zillions of people all the time, but like it's got back to kind of what it was like 20 years ago, which uh, I'm kind of secretly quite enjoying. So oh are God. you are you able to... Um... Have you come up with anything new? We know that you're very experimental and a lot of your scores have a unique original sound that you're sort of, um, you, you document a lot of this stuff on your social media, but um, have you come up with some sort of new interesting sound while you've been uh, staying at uh, home out there? Uh, no, I've got back into trying to program some synths. Like it's quite a good opportunity to be like, oh, let's try and learn how to program this synth a bit better. But I haven't done anything like particularly particularly i'm trying to think i've been recording quite a lot of guitar feedback in here on the shitty we saw some amazing videos of you rocking yeah, for birds really hard yeah um yeah so i'm doing a project at the moment that i'm sort of recording a lot of feedback for which is quite interesting um but i don't think i've been doing anything like i've been writing basically i've just been doing a lot of a lot of i know tell you what i have bought i bought these these are really cool so a friend of mine called Stephen gallagher posted something and these are like these tiny um, Korg clip mics. Oh my uh, goodness! That you can attach. He's holding a little uh, little lav mic. What? What do you? Well, they're basically for tuning for saxophones and wind instruments. Hmm. Uh, the idea is you clip it onto the horn, and it takes the vibrations and just tells you, you know, whether you're in tune or not. But they double up if you really crank them up. They double up as insane mics. Uh, huh. So I've been sticking them on bits of paper. Well, I could, sh- I don't, if, I don't know if I show you, this is going to fuck everything. Let's just try something. This might go <laughs> Let's do it. We're ready for everything here. We're going to sample it and use it in, in our next theme song. This might not work. I'm just, trying to- I'm just wondering if you could take that and clip it onto a singer's larynx and see if they're in tune. Right, let's just see him. But um, this is not super interesting. Let's see if I got something more interesting. Like if you it's funky. So like a hip hop kick drum. Like you can get really good. So yeah, if you got like this, is just on a. So it's not. This is not sounding particularly exciting. I got to say, you need to like. You kind of hear it through there. If I crank it up a bit more. You're not really getting it, to be honest. This is part of what a composer does, though, right? This you're, is what you you're, do. You're experimenting. Ooh, yeah. that's good. Yeah, so you got like... I mean, like, this is not really my finest hour. This is a bit more empty. I might just drink a bit. Hang on. <laughs> he's literally making an instrument out of his water bottle he's drinking out of. Uh, the, like, dan- the danger of this is that yeah, if this is... The- if this is the last thing you ever record. Ooh. But it's got like a really... It ends up sounding like a, when you record it... You know, so you can sort of pitch it if I move this around a bit. But like... But 
But the thing is, it ends you up just written a great cue. That's a that's a danger and tension cue. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I do quite a lot like that. Um, it, it, uh, if you, yeah, it's what's interesting about it is it, it sort of really heavily compresses the sound, so it ends up sounding a bit like really early '60s, almost like kung fu movies. You know, when you get that. <laughs> And it's like insanely compressed. Were you always experimenting like this? Um, we we wanted to get into a little bit of how you got into film scoring, but um, I mean, I guess we can start there. What what was your early days of uh, of music? Were you in music school? Did you grow up with musical parents? Uh, no, I mean, like, I got very into like synthesizer music when I was about ten or eleven or something, and that'd be mm. people like Jean Michel Jarre and Vangelis and the Art of Noise. And I was always very interested in sound and like worlds and atmosphere more than, you know, songs and lyrics, really. And I, I think around 92, 94, there was this like really big electronic music explosion in Britain that had like lots of really um, cool artists like Future Sound of London, uh, The Orb, Aphex Twin, all these kind of people. And they were using sound in a very interesting way. And that always got me quite excited. Like the idea that music can be anything. It doesn't have, I'm like, I'm not like big on, I don't really like rules. I don't like being told this is the way you do things. I like trying to work out how can we just do something different. And, um, I think through that, I started making music in my bedroom on a four track. I'd like mm-hmm. saved up loads of money and I bought a Korg wave station and, a four track tape machine didn't even, didn't have, even have a sequencer and then i would just record like make sort of textural ambient stuff on on that and so i got very into sound from an early age like just recording stuff i used to have a really crappy walkman with a recording function mm-hmm. and then i got a mini disc player which i think is actually over here still here look the same one i've had for like behind daniel there's a ton of instruments and you just mini disc. Oh, look at that. Oh, man, that's it. A relic. He's got his throwback. Yeah, uh, straight from the 90s. Um, and um, uh, so I got very into sound and like what sound could bring to something. Um, and I put this record out when I was 16, uh, mm. which is kind of, kind of random, called Bedroom, uh, which is quite a pretty avant-garde electronic record. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a director you know, heard that. And he asked me to start scoring a TV show he was doing documentary, which amazingly, if you want an idea of what the time was, this is like 96, I think, or 97. The film was this person called Janet Street Porter. And it was her arguing that the internet was a passing fad. that would <laughs> never on, And it was only going to be used by like sad men. And like the whole thing would, was like basically the sort of nineties equivalent of CB radio and would, and the whole show was her basically arguing the internet is nothing more than a passing fad. So that really dates the, the show pretty well. By so the way, got, that could be a new Netflix hit today. Is that It's a film. Black Mirror episode. Yeah, it yeah. should be. Oh, speaking of Black Mirror episode, I listened last night to, I just re-listened to that score that you did. That was very, it's funny you said 90s kind of techno synthy feel that was really interesting really interesting vibe to the music in the in the episode yeah i mean there's a lot of like electronic from electronic point of view and like sound experimentation there was really great stuff going on in the 90s and it feels like 
you know, that was a good time to be absorbing like just the idea of a world of sound. And um, so that, you know, that had a big impact on me. And, you know, sometimes I'm doing experimentation just because my demo is sounding a bit shit. I just need to find something to, to distract you from the fact that demo is not really working. I have, it's like a magician, right? Like if a magician says like, uh, I don't know, you know, like, you know, the, the, the magician does something where they go like, like, look at this hand over here. Look at this, look at this. And then the other hand, like that comes up, you know, right. it's like, of course. So I, I sometimes do that sonically where I'm like, ah, oh, this doesn't sound very good. So I'll put some kind of whoop, whoop, whoop. When you got the it. call for uh, this, this first project, this first TV show, did you immediately say, oh, for sure, I'm going to score this? Or were you thinking, I'm not a composer. How do I, how, I'm not a TV composer. This is totally new to me. What, what were your thoughts when you got that call? Um, oh, my phone's going off. Outside. Oh, maybe there's uh, another call. We've got a it's film a, coming. It's that lady saying, you know what? I've rethought that whole internet thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's, I was wondering the same that uh, Kenny asked. Did you know how to score the film? Did you sync no. it up? No, I mean, the first time I did it, it was like, I didn't like, um, like, I didn't know how to do, I, I you know, it, I was like, oh, I'll give this a go. Like, let's see how this works out. Um, like, I, you know, you just, I just kind of threw myself into it. And I was just like, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'll just try it out. You know, I didn't even have a sampler. Actually, that mini disc player, I made a drum loop on that mini disc player of just taking, making a pattern and then just looping it because it has a loop function that those old mini disc players hmm. and um i did it i was still at school so i did my homework and then i did a tv score and i was like that was fun and then i got asked to do another one and i got asked to do another one and i think because i really cared about it like for me it was like i was just trying to make really good music i wasn't really looking at like oh i'm just doing a job for a tv show i was like i'm trying to make a really good piece of music that people responded to that because I think there was a lot of people in TV at that time. And I still think this kind of exists in film and TV where there's a bit of like what I call like client satisfaction, where it's like their only goal is to please the client. Is the client happy? Hooray. Whereas I'm like, nah, like obviously you want to keep people happy, but I'm like, I just want to make the best score it can be. So I'll have arguments with directors the whole time. They're like, I like this piece and I'm like, yeah, but it's not good enough. We can make it better. I want to bin it and do something else. And I've had like big arguments with directors over things that they're happy with. And I'm not. It's interesting. It's often the opposite, which is the director says, uh, you know, the composer comes in with a great piece of music and the director says, Oh, I don't know if that works. And then you're arguing, no, this really works. Or let me work on it to show you. Yeah, I mean, you have that all the time. I mean, like, I'm, you know, I'm not always right. It's like, obviously, I like to think I'm always right, but uh, <laughs> you're not. You know, composer, directors have different visions about what they want. I've got a thing at the moment where I'm on a film and we are going through like a gazillion versions of the opening. And it's like, it's kind of insane. But, you know, I'm getting what, like the director's slightly changing what he wants, but it's, I understand why he's making those calls. So I don't mind. I've, I've never got a problem, you know, everyone's got a different vision for the story sometimes and the director can have something. There might be something they're trying to say that they don't necessarily know how to express. So um, I'm always just like, what is going to make the film the best it can be and what's going to make the experience the best for the audience. I'm always thinking really about the audience and like Hmm. when you go see a movie, is it going to be like 
really, really exciting, really engaging, really powerful. Like for me, it's always about thinking about seeing in the cinema or watching it on TV or whatever. And I just want to try and give those moments that I've had when I've seen things where you're like, whoa, that got me or like that kind of stayed in here afterwards. And, and that involves quite a lot of pushing sometimes. Um, you know, I'm not, you know, it's always been about trying to push and push mm. it to, to do something that's great. And it makes the process difficult sometimes because I know I can do things that people will be happy with. But I don't want to do them because I know they're really straightforward and, you know, they're fine. I always use the burger metaphor, which is a really good metaphor, which is just everyone likes burger and chips. And most people like, what do you want to eat? Burger and chips. But I don't want to give them burger and chips. I want to give them something, you know, like way more interesting and different. And they might go, wow, this is great. Or they might go, I just want burger and chips still. And in which case, <laughs> okay, I'll make you a really good burger and chips. But it's trying to push, push things so the language of cinema and film music gets broader because I think it could be such a, it's such an amazing um, world like from for a great creative musician it's um, it's like one of the greatest sandpits to play in like you can do so many different things and i'm always amazed at how film music still is often only viewed through the lens of an orchestra uh like an orchestra gives something um like prestige and credibility in like mainstream society and everything else doesn't it's we still got this very weird way of looking at music that feels very like based on like sort of class and intellectualism. Whereas the, the great thing about doing music, like for film is you can go from anything and like me banging a water bottle up and down for like two minutes can be just as effective as, you know, a 60 piece string section doing some, you know, some kind of mad atonal movements and, and absorbing yourself in that world and realizing and getting to stage, hopefully, where you realize that actually the water bottle is better than the orchestra, because you've heard the orchestra a million times do that. That's when it gets exciting. And that's when you can look at every element purely for its musical um, that's great. power. I think you've said three things in that last couple paragraphs that are absolute essential aspects of what you do. Number one, when you use the burger and chips analogy and how you go past it. You've just explained to me why unabashedly you were looking at a screen full of fans of Daniel Pemberton music because it does go so wonderfully into new territory. I mean, it's just the more we listen to your opus, it was kind of remarkable how many territories we're going to get to that, but the variety of music, but also how it was kind of whatever variety we were in was just a step beyond. And so I just understood a little bit of it. That comes from your initiative. The other thing you said, which I really love, is that the sandpit is so wonderful. People rarely understand that, you know, they say, oh, you know, hey, this sounds like movie music. I always say, I don't have a clue what that means. Movie music can be a guy hitting on a bottle or it can be an orchestra or it can be Jerry Goldsmith playing frying pans and mixing bowls. There's no movie music analogy. Hey, Robert, do you still record with an orchestra or do you use any synthesizers when you record? What? I don't know. Uh, yes, both, neither. 
and seeing you do the feedback stuff was so cool. I want to ask you a question about something you said also. You said when people see a movie and when people go to the cinema, we're in a minute right now where that experience may be on the bubble a little bit. Does that change the way you think about recording or scoring if you think people are going to hear it sitting on their couch as opposed to being in a big room? Or do you trust that we will all go back to the movies in numbers? I mean, I hope we go back to the movies because it's still, for me, like one of the greatest kind of art forms there is. And, you know, when you go and see, every time I see a really good movie, I remember where I was, where I saw it, what seat I sat in, talking about it on the way back from the cinema. And I think also that experience of hearing it. I've seen some of my films. There's a great cinema near me called the IMAX. Um, there's an IMAX BFI, which is in the middle of this roundabout in Waterloo. And it's like Chris, one of Chris Nolan's favorite cinemas. Hmm. And I always go and see a Chris Nolan movie there because it always sounds fucking insane. They've got hmm. an amazing system. I've heard a few of my movies there and I'm like, this is the only time I will ever experience my score heard like this. I remember seeing Man Fuckle there and going, shit, I'm hearing things I didn't even hear when we were mixing Abbey Road. And um, that experience is like, you know, is really special. And so I, you know, I really hope it doesn't go away. Um, I think we're definitely in a time of, of change, but I do think that, you know, cinema can be expensive, but if you see a great movie, it's a bargain of all time. Like, it's when it's anyone you see like average movies that it's you know you feel you might feel a bit cheated, but it's still like for what twenty quid or however much it is, you can see some of the greatest works of art ever that have like so like the amount of time I invest in like just getting a hi hat sound. Like if you came and see how I mix or record, I get so fiddly on all these different aspects. <laughs> That maybe no one's ever even going to hear. Yeah. Or they may not know how you got there. They may just think it's a guy sit, stepping on a pedal and, and clapping the hi-hat together, but you're making it out of an object. Yeah. I mean, like, um, I just, I've just done this film score and there are so many different things, in, like textures. And I love layering things to get like slightly more unusual um, uh, sort of feel to stuff. And you're, you might even never notice that when you hear it, but I've put that much detail into just the soundtrack and you've got all the other departments doing that on everything from like buildings, costumes, lines, acting. And, you know, you're getting a, an amazing experience for cinema. So I'm always like a big pro cinema guy. And it, it's weird. I've just done a movie called Enola Holmes and that was meant to come out in the cinema. Um, but it's now gone to Netflix because, you know, like the next... Um, you know, six months, if we go back to cinema, there's like a huge lineup of big beasts like Bond and Mulan and Fast and Furious. They're going to like pound our movie. <laughs> if it out so then it wouldn't come out for a year and a half and all this kind of stuff. So they're, they're, they're sending it to Netflix, which for me is like, like it's a, it's a bit of a shame in the sense that we've done this like really big Atmos mix. And I've definitely written it in a way that was for a cinema, mm. but at the same time, loads more people are probably going to see it. Loads more people are going to experience it. So that's kind of cool. So you just got to take, you know, you've always just got to adapt to what's around you. I mean, I'm always just like doing the work. So 
people get to hear it and enjoy it, then that's like extra bonus. I want to fast forward a little bit. So you, you got the call, you got into some scoring some TV and then your first kind of big movie on the scene. Was that the Ridley Scott film? Or when did you sort of step into the the theatrical cinema scene and and varsity TV? So the first sort of proper movie I I did that came out was called The Awakening, which Mm. was this uh, like period ghost story by a really great British director called Nick Murphy. And I'd worked with him on um, a bunch of TV projects. And he very kindly took me into the film world because often as soon as the director gets their first gig, they're like, well, see ya. Um, and you know, did it's a really great film, really proud of the work we did on it. And the, the film came out, didn't really do a lot. Lots of people didn't see it. But then one person did, which is Ridley Scott mm. and Ridley loved it. He loved the music. And I got called in to a meeting with Ridley. I, I sort of knew his editor, Pietro Scalia, cause I'd worked with him on a short film once. And so I got called in to meet Ridley and we got on really well. I, mean, I really love Ridley. He's like, like really awesome, down to earth, funny. He's like, he's got this kind of reputation that's quite scary, but he's, if you actually get to know him, he's really funny. Uh, and, you know, he, he, you can argue with him. You can debate. He's a really good collaborator. Um, and we talked about our, like our careers and things. He was quizzing me about mine. You know, I, I'd basically at that point done about 10, 15 years in TV. And like I said, I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just making it up as I go along. <laughs> and and that sounds like sort of flippant, but it was kind of true. Um, and I just learned every time I did a job, I would learn how to do something else. I'd do, right, let's go and do an orchestra. I don't know how to do that. So I'd work it out. And let's go do jazz band. Let's do, let's do this. And so I'd constantly do all these jobs and learn every time and by not knowing what I was doing and just throwing myself in the deep end. And then he was like, you know, you've done, you know, you've done your 10,000 hours in the garage, just doing that. That's how you've learned how to do film music. And he was like, I learned how to direct doing that and advertising. Cause he was like a phenomenal advertising director. And he's like, I learned everything I know through that period. So he's like, you know, we kind of did the same thing. So I was like, that's a fucking cool story. I met Ridley Scott. I kind of thought that at the end of it, and I've got a nice little Ridley Scott anecdote. And then a week later, I get a phone call saying, right, he wants you to score the movie. Can you come over in like an hour? And I was asleep in bed. I was like, shit, really? Really? Like, I was like half awake. And then I was like, oh, fuck. Oh, yeah, great. Uh, ooh, uh. And then I basically had to cycle over to Soho incredibly fast. <laughs> you know what a great compliment it is that Ridley liked your music because Ridley has superb taste in music and in composers. Of course, you're now entering a... Hall of Fame with Hans and Harry um, and... Vangelis. Yeah, Vangelis. Um, I'm not sure where Mark Streitenfeld fits in, but um, I uh, also, I'm sure you had the experience of being in a mixing room with Ridley or in a studio with Ridley, Abbey Road usually, and my experience was he'd sit quietly throughout a lot of the scoring, but if there was a problem, instead of getting hysterical or I he would just turn around to the composer and Harry I, I I'm not sure that works he'd say I mean I just was he was it's funny you say he was scary he was elegant whenever I worked with him on no, I never I never I never found him scary no that's yeah, what you did. Same. He had this this rep I was yeah I he's like 
super nice guy to work with. I think with Ridley, it's like if you're going to work with Ridley, you got to have your like 100% A game on. He's got no time for slackers. Completely. No time for excuses. It's not like, oh, I can't do that because X, Y, and Z. You're just like, right, let's just do it. Like, Well, that experience took you to the A team. Like when we're doing the counselor, we were going to do a, we were doing a, they were about to fly off to America and they were going to retempt the opening. They, they were still fiddling with the, the opening. I'd written this piece and they were like, yeah, we, we want to try something else. So they're about to put something else on. And I was like, if that goes on the beginning and they screen it in America and they like it, I'm, I'm kind of fucked because it's going to It be wasn't so- a piece of yours. No, it was just a temp, temp. from another yeah. film. And I was like, this is going to like, like this will end up being a virus that affects the rest of the score in a way I don't want it to do, right? So I was like, look, we had a big chat about why the opening wasn't working. I was like, look, I think I know what you want. And we we're having like lunch in like uh, in a Soho cutting room and he was flying off about five o'clock that evening or something. So I was like, look, we could just sit here and chat for ages or I could cycle home and try and rewrite the opening in the next two hours. <laughs> and he was like, yeah okay so i was like okay shit so i basically like cycled through soho back to my house like kamikaze like could have got killed <laughs> dodging out of traffic going this is fucking crazy i'm like trying to fight <laughs> back weirdly on that cycle ride i saw danny boyle which was very weird like years later i would end up working with danny but i saw danny boyle outside this um that's uh, insane <laughs> Oh, look, there's Danny Boyle. I'm running back to um, Ridley's. Uh, he didn't say, uh, hey, man, do you have time to do yesterday uh, yeah. after you finish this queue? So um, you get home. I get home. I just go, right, let's rewrite this beginning. Boom, 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 as far as I can. Like, And did it in about two hours, sent it off to Pietro. They're like, this is great. Cut it in. That went off on the plane. And that is pretty much what the beginning of the film now is with the titles. You know, it got changed a bit, but the ideas that were done in those two hours like what ended up being the, the opening to the film. Did you write any of that on the bike ride in your head? Were you like working stuff out? Oh, I had, yeah, I had some ideas in my head, but, um, but it's just that thing. Like he's a guy who just likes people who do stuff, I think. And, you know, you just got to go and do it and don't complain. How crazy that you, you saw Danny Boyle and just a couple years later, you're doing Steve Jobs with him. Um, yeah. How did did you guys run into each other again? Was it from the bike ride? He said, I, that guy who just rode past, I got to hire him someday. I want that guy. Uh, with him, <laughs> I, met, I met him in the place he was standing outside, which is really odd if you think about it, because um, there's a there's a club in Soho called the Union, which is a sort of members club. And he was standing, he's obviously a member, he was standing outside there, and that's why I met him. And even weirder, he wanted to meet me because he really liked the score to the counselor. Mm. So... Like you like the first of, cue. Yeah. I mean, yeah, maybe he did. So he really liked the score of the counselor. And um, so I met him. We had a chat. And then we did Steve Jobs. And it was great. Um, and, you know, that's been a nice relationship as well. Again, yeah. Daniel, you're, you're too modest because you're naming two directors who have single-handedly chosen music for their pictures that are – world-class composers i mean a.r Rahman with danny of course and um ridley with hans i mean these are these directors understand music and i can't say that about all directors god bless them all some of them are better with picture or dialogue some really understand music but not all of them and you've been complimented 
to the moon by these two. Yeah. And and with um Steve Jobs, the the approach was really cool on that because again, you could have just went to the orchestra, but because the film had roots in the 80s, you 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 went around and and looked for equipment. You created a score based on the time period. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came up with that idea and and where you found the equipment? Well, like Aaron Sorkin wrote the script and it was like really apparent like it was it was very consciously done in three acts Danny was shooting in three acts one act at a time as well and they were the DOP was shooting differently um different film stocks so everything to me just said right everyone else is doing this maybe I should do it too so they were using like old cameras older older style film just to to incorporate the look all around yeah, so to like move between those three different time periods, they would they were approaching it differently in terms of like, you know, staging, uh, filming process. You know, the script was very clear, the way Aaron had written it, very clear, three acts. So I was like, I've got to do this on the music as well. So they, the idea always was with that was trying to write it in three different ways. So the way I kind of broke it down, the idea was the birth of technology, which was like the, the, the launch of the Macintosh, was always going to be about the kind of brave new future that computers offered and you know trying to get it period and of the time and so the synthesizer felt like you know the idea of the synthesizer in the 80s was so exotic and exciting still so i basically try to limit it to like no nothing that didn't exist before 1984 like that's mm. the way it had to be made so i use lots of like cs80 like mini moogs all kinds of like gear that were like you know, uh, pre-1984 synthesizers. Um, and then the second act, which was Steve Jobs unveiling the next computer, mm. because that was all shot in the San Francisco Opera House, like it was very kind of ornate and um, sort of quite dramatic. And it felt like he's a big showman in that. Like a lot of this is about him being a showman and, and um, about those launches. So it felt like I needed to capture some of that drama in the music and it made sense because the surroundings to play into that and just kind of write an opera for the second. Mm, so second cool. Act. And then the third act was kind of the idea of like the Macintosh has become the computer. He always wanted it to be in 84, but in 84, you know, your his dreams are bigger than the tech. And now, you know, like I, I just sitting there, the, the Mac, and I just remember thinking, well, I'll just write it all in the Mac, like the kind of dream of what he had of like trying to write this digital score, just using the stuff that was inside the, um, you know, inside the Mac, because you can do that now and it doesn't sound rubbish. So that was the idea. And I, I like trying to like create limitations for scores sometimes because it means you really focus. Whereas if you go, hey, I could have anything here, it can become a bit of a mess. It's just an incredible story, Daniel, to first of all, acknowledge that the audience has no fucking clue the extent of the detail that you've just described for three acts of the Steve Jobs movie. They're watching a movie, they're watching the characters, they're watching the story unfold, not realizing that the composer has gone so deep into a creative realm. I think it's just wonderful and just a great... It's a kind of advertisement for composers in its own way and how hard they work and how unacknowledged that work is. 
I mean, the thing is about that is like I, I'm quite. I don't really want them to notice. I just want them to like experience it, and you know, it will change how they feel about the film. And the, the idea is always like, you know, just you don't have to know how these things are done. You just have to like feel it. And if you're in the audience, and I always joke, I write music for the one percent of like the one percent of people who actually care and notice film music. But um, yeah, yeah. But like, you know, I'm always trying to like. I am always. I'm always kind of thinking basically about me. Like, what would I think if I saw this movie? Would mm. I be like, oh, taiko drums and staccato strings? Eh, I'm out. Daniel, I think one of the things that I really appreciate about every score I've heard is, and I now understand it talking to you, how regardless of the style, you do go deep. I mean, to listen to Spider Verse next to Motherless Brooklyn? Yeah. It's it's if you closed your eyes and didn't know that's two composers that's two completely different composers one's an kind of American uh, jazzer who's really got this Miles Davis vibe and maybe listened to Jerry Goldsmith's Chinatown and the other is this kind of super hip hip hop maniac Tron it was brilliant daft. the so the Spider Verse thing was so brilliant oh my god. And I think Motherless Brooklyn is just unbelievably evocative. Do you worry that if you get into one particular genre that might not be your organic wheelhouse, that it might sound not up to your other scores, or do you just learn that wheelhouse? Yeah, I mean, it's the thing that's difficult. Like, the thing I'm always trying to do is, like, trying to work out is, does the, will the movie allow me to try something different? Mm. and so there are certain movies i i sort of like i wouldn't say turned down but kind of like decided not to turn up to the running track so to yeah. speak yeah. uh because i've just kind of thought i know what this movie is going to be it's it you know people tell you we want to make this sound like nothing else we want it to be super original blah 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 but you can tell quite early on like whether that's actually going to be the case or not and so if it's like a slightly cookie cutter approach, I try and stay away f- if I can from those movies. And I've always tried to work with people who, or projects where I kind of feel I can bring something of my individuality to it. And then the very nature, if they're allowing you to bring your individuality to it, then hopefully you can do something fresh because you're not just trying to recycle a cue that another composer did who was ripping off another composer who was ripping off someone else through the sort of temp centipede. Um, and temp you know, centipede might, that is good yeah. <laughs> that's a band um, so you might not um, like there's definitely certain genres like I'm more comfortable with like I find action sort of difficult like not diff- I want to say difficult but I find it difficult to do something original in action and that's a lot down to filmmaking because if you're writing music that's very reactive to the picture um it ends up sounding very similar to a lot of other other scores. So I was trying, like, you know, I did I did Birds of Prey recently, and yes. I came on board of that because I felt I could do something different with that world, and I felt it was a chance to do the kind of DC Comics world in a very different style. And we had a lot of discussions going through that about there were bits where we really they wanted me to try and do it like more conventionally action, and I was like, I don't want, like why why would we want to do that like. I've seen a million movies like that where it goes and someone gets punched. And you've seen those movies. You've heard them a million times. 
when I'm in the cinema and I watch those things, I'm like, oh, all right, let's get this fighting thing done with. And, then <laughs> and whereas when it's different, you're like, you're like super lean in. And, and so for me, it's always like, do you get a chance to do something different? And if you do, then you, you get inspired as a composer because you get to do, you know, you get to work differently and you get to try and make up the rules as you go rather than follow the rules that have been set. And, um, you know, film music's interesting sometimes because there are a lot of like unwritten rules that we all kind of abide by because they work. They're really successful. They give you the impact, emotional impact you want. They give you the physical impact sometimes, but when you can try and move away from those, but still get a similar emotional effect, that's when it's like, for me, most effective. Cause I always think, I have this line where I was like, there's no such thing as bad music. Like there's literally no such thing as bad music. It's just about the context. So even the worst record you can ever think of or the worst piece of music, if you had never heard a piece of music before, and that's the first thing you heard, it would be amazing. And so it's like trying to have that mindset of like, how can you create things that like feel like experiences people haven't had? And I still think there's actually like huge scope. There's like tons of ideas I have like, that I haven't even got around to doing yet. Like, I just want the right movie to come up and I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, I want to do that movie. I, like, I, that's actually, it's funny you say that because we were thinking that about Spider-Verse and the way you took an orchestra and scratched it. First off, um, was that your first animated film? Yeah, that was the first full length one. And you're right, because that was an idea I'd had for like 20 years from like, I used to go to these hip hop clubs in London when I was a bit younger, uh, kind of dressed the same though um and uh uh i was really i got really into turntablism which was just people using the record turntables for scratching but doing like really inventive stuff with it so it'd be nights like there's a label called ninja tune and Mowax, uh and they were doing like very interesting experimental hip-hop stuff uh and they had like you know i just started seeing great djs people like dj shadow uh, DJ Food, the Psychonauts, all these kind of people. Um, and they, that gave me an idea. I was like, you could use like turntables as an instrument. And I've always wanted a score where I felt I could do that. But that never really came up until Spider-Verse. And then Spider-Verse, I was like, I've got this idea that I've wanted to do for 20 years. And they were like, okay, cool. Yeah, whatever. And um, it was like really complicated. Like, if I'd known how complicated and like time consuming and the amount of like R and D, so to speak, would have to go into doing it. Because early on we were like trying to look at like how do we scratch seven point one Atmos files, okay? Which is unbelievably complicated. You think it's really straightforward. It's not. Because I was like, we're gonna record an orchestra, we're gonna record the five one or seven one. So that's gonna be like seven different like audio sources and I want the same scratch applied to all of those. And I ended up chatting to Serato, who are like um, the big... The big DJ like, software, yeah. Yeah, who like create this really amazing software that allows you to do that. And um, uh, yeah, we, we spoke to a lot of people and it was just like, this is going to be so unbelievably complicated that don't bother. So we ended up doing a stereo and it was fine. But the process of getting to that, we did experiments and it was like, it was... For something you think shouldn't be that complicated, it was really complicated. Well, lucky for you, the movie won uh, a Golden Globe, and 
the Oscar. Yeah, I won the Oscar. It basically won every single award except one from you. And now you get to do it all over again. <laughs> yeah, I have, right. So we're about to do this massive clap uh, all over London for like the NHS and all the care workers who obviously are doing an amazing job while are slightly less. Do you amazing. hear it in your no, crib? It, it's going gonna, it's gonna to kick off in a tick. So I can see everyone being out of the window. So if I open my window, hang on. Back We're about to hear all of London clapping for their health workers. Is he going to? He might sample this. Stand by. He's, he's got instruments. And Daniel's going to contribute. All right. I think now's a good time to take a break while Daniel is thanking the healthcare workers of London. I hear people whistling in the background. We will pause. Stick around much more with Daniel Pemberton when we return. Hey there, fans of Score the Podcast. I'm David W. Collins, creator and host of The Soundtrack Show for iHeartRadio. Like you, I love Score the Podcast. And The Soundtrack Show is the perfect complement if you're passionate about music for film, TV, even video games and theater. Each week, I do a deep dive into some of the greatest scores of all time, as well as some fan favorites and talk about why the music moves us from a character and story point of view. We also learn fascinating behind-the-scenes stories and share the history and background that brought each piece of music to life. It doesn't matter if you're a musician or not. Music is a language that we all understand. And through our love of movies like Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Back to the Future, or even classics like Casablanca or Psycho, we can gain a deeper appreciation for how composers are speaking to us through music explaining why we have such a powerful reaction to the images on screen. The Soundtrack Show is available on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Bear McCreary. You're listening to Score the Podcast. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Score the Podcast, presented by Spitfire Audio. We're chatting with the amazing and inventive composer, Daniel Pemberton, who is outside his window right now clapping for the healthcare workers of London. Daniel, you still with us? I've got a on as well. Somewhere. <laughs> it's, a, it's like Daniel Pemberton is living inside like a toy box. Yeah. Just everywhere around him, he, he's always grabbing for something. I think you could add your applause, Kenny. That's score the podcast saluting the workers of London. Can you, I don't know if you can hear out the window. It's yeah, we're now. here. Right. I bet shut the window now. That is very wonderful that you do that and that London does that. It's great. Yeah, because obviously there's loads of people who have been for years underpaid and treated terribly by our uh, government. And now they've suddenly realized they're really important. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Why didn't you realize that 10 years ago? Yeah, they're the um, heroes. Regarding Spider-Verse, so the the film went on to win all these awards and um, you're, you're set up for Spider-Verse 2. Are you going to be taking that same approach with the scratches to keep that sound or was that uh, you going to try and switch it up? I'm curious if you keep the vibe there. I mean, Spider-Verse 2, technically I'm not on yet. So it's like, uh, it's, it's not. That's a news break. I can't imagine they would even think twice. Um, no, no, and- not, like let's say there's things going on behind the scenes. But uh, like, look, I've been—we've already been talking about it. I like 
the thing about Spider-Verse is everyone involved with that movie, like we all cared about it so much. It's one of the most sort of amazing movie experiences I've had where I felt we, everyone on that knew they were doing something different. And I remember working on it and everyone being like, what are you working on? I'd be like, oh, I'm, I'm working on this Spider-Man movie. And they'd be like, oh, Spider-Man, all right. Like another one. And then you'd be like, oh, it's an animated one. And they'd be like, oh. Like their, their enthusiasm just, and even when it came out, it was kind of interesting. People were a bit like, well, I don't see an animated Spider-Man movie. And then I'm like, you should see it. It's amazing. And then over time, it's been amazing how all these people who sort of slightly dismissed it at the time have been like, fuck, that movie is amazing. It's groundbreaking. Yeah. I remember uh, a friend of mine asked me to go and I said, an animated spider? I, I looked up nothing about the movie. I didn't know anything about it. Went in cold. And it had the, the Spider-Man humor. Like it had that that sort of feel to it. But it was also so original. And I remember noticing that the animation was completely different than anything I had ever seen. And I'm curious, because I know it took a really long time for them to do that. How early on were you uh, brought onto the project? And were you scoring as they were changing stuff? Or did you get like a finished cut? <laughs> that film only got finished, I think, a week before the premiere. Wow. Or like, or before the release. They fiddle with that right to the end. Like, Phil and Chris, uh, uh, like, want to keep pushing it and making it like, like, better and better and better uh it was crazy um but yes i didn't get i never i never got a finished cut on that i would just be working alongside everyone that was like the maddest all hands on deck let's just get this i was working in la for that i was living this weird parallel life to all of society where my life was stuck in a cupboard at sony trying to finish this film Mm. and uh, i would get up i'd go for a run uh, from my hotel i'd get in a car i'd be at sony i'd be there till like one or two in the morning i'd leave i'd be the only person on the entire lot i would go home and that would happen every day and it was super great there was so much to do and i you know i don't have like a massive team of people churning out other cues i'm doing everything so it's like it's a lot of work but um it's with that with that film we all so believed in it and i think because we were slightly under the radar in the same way that people were like, oh yeah, Spider-Man animated, I don't really care. It meant that we were left alone to make something special. You know, if that was like the big Marvel Spider-Man movie, there was no way I would have got to do that score, I would have thought. I mean, I might have Mm. done, but I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have done. Um, And that was what was so exciting because we were just like, everyone's pushing the boundaries all the time, all the animators, all the designers, art department. So we were like, I got to do that too. I got to keep up with everyone else because they are doing such an amazing job on that film of making everything unique. And so like aside from the story and everything that the, the, the film stands for, like just from an artistic like um, point of view, it was like so exciting to work on. And with the sequel, obviously I'm not really going to talk anything about it, but, all I'll say is I was worried that they might just be like, hey, we've made a successful animated Spider-Man movie. We're just going to churn out some wisecracking Spider-Man and it'll, you know, it will still make money, but who cares? No. Like what they want to do with the sequel is like fucking amazing. And it's going to be like Spider-Verse is the warm up. Spider-Verse one is the warm up. Wow. 
So I'm super conscious of trying to make it like as exciting and groundbreaking and um, unexpected as possible. I the filmmakers. Want- so what you're telling us right now is you're not on the film, but you're working on ideas for the film you're not on. I'm all I'm saying is <laughs> I'm not officially on the film. I'm I think we we will, we can leave it at that. We can keep the fans on edge. I want to ask a question just out of <laughs> curiosity. When was the first time you heard the post Malone hit from the film? During the film, after the film, in a pub somewhere, somebody said, Oh, here's a song from Spider Man. Spring Spring, who's the music um, spring exactly. aspers yeah lovely she, she brought it in on a little uh like speaker like a kind of portable boombox because no one was allowed to actually have it we weren't even allowed to have it for the movie i think for quite a while we mm. could only hear it by spring playing it in the office so the first time i heard it was in my little cupboard in sony mm. that was about this like i thought hey i'm going off to hollywood to make a movie oh i'm stuck in an office like a tiny <laughs> deserted floor at sony in a small office um room and um yeah she came in and we all heard it i mean it's a great it's a great track i like it's really interesting arrangement and it's nuts how big that song has become um do you did that um help does that help you when there's a big single like that or do do people think post malone scored the movie i'm curious if there's like confusion when you have a huge hit like that i think most people have no idea there's like score in most movies like if i'm being really honest people remember pop songs they don't remember anything else. And like, I think what you wanted to do, like, I think the thing is sometimes tricky for me is like when the sort of the most valuable bits of real estate in a movie get given over to songs. And I don't mind it when those songs are, you know, bringing something to the film, but if they're just there for marketing, it's very frustrating. Um, And also if you are as a composer trying to build a language through the film to like pay off in key moments, which I'm always trying to do. I'm always trying to like seed ideas. So when they come, they mean something and they connect. Uh, Sometimes songs like, you know, on loads of movies can play havoc with those kind of bits of architecture. Like you're trying to build a very elegant building and they're like, Hey, we want to put a subway like on the 14th floor. (laughs) And you're like, "Ah, that's going to kind of ruin like, but they're like, Hey, everyone likes subway. I mean, do they? But, yeah. um, so, and Subway will do some advertising for the for the for the, for the, for the, the building, um, and that's great. And I'm like, okay, um, but you know, like Spider Verse, like you know, my favorite bit, is, like in terms of like working together, is the What's Up Danger track, which was working with that track and building the score. So the score you've heard all the way through, the sort of ba ba ba, which I'd play on something if I oh, know I'm not having any logic. I'm not doing that, uh, but. Mm. Uh, uh, I'm just going to play on the piano in two seconds. Thanks. Let's do it. So the kind of like, um, obviously you can't see me, but like you might be able to hear this. So you've got the kind of Miles' theme. So yeah. that, that kind of theme you've been hearing all the way through the 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 the, the film, right. you know, the whole idea is you're getting chords here, you're getting the theme here, you're getting bits, you're getting the baseline here, and then it all comes together when he finally becomes Spider-Man. And then at the very end, when, you know, 
the end of the film, all those other bits all come together. And I always like that idea of trying to have all these different elements of a film mean something. And, you know, they tie together. Like when we see who the Prowler is, that whole idea in that film, you know, for me, I was like massively influenced by Once Upon a Time in the uh, West, the Morricone mm. score. Yeah. I remember seeing that in a cinema. I saw it at the National uh, Film Theater, or the BFI now. And that film is long, man. It's like a three and a half hour film <laughs> or something. And I always think like, it's an amazing Western, but you took the, take the music out of it. I'd be like, is it as amazing as everyone says it is? <laughs> but when that track kicks in, you're like, holy shit, that's the thing. The man with a harmonica that I've been hearing all the way through. And you realize why you've been hearing it. And that thing where you, it pulls back, boom, and it just gets you in the heart of like, fuck, this is why you've been hearing this tune. And it pays off. It's like one of the best cinema moments I've ever had. And I was mm. like, I want that Spider-Verse. I want to have this tool that you're hearing. It's like this, this noise that scares you. You don't know what it is. It's abstract. Then there's going to be a moment when it, ties up with a melodic and musical idea and it fucking punches you really hard in the heart because what's being revealed as well is very painful. And um, that was like a super conscious decision to build this idea so that at that moment, which is like the peak moment for that, that piece, you've, you've, you've built an apparatus around. So I I was always about protecting that moment, the amount of like emails arguments I'd have about like, I got like my please turn the music up cards that you can play as a composer. And if you play them all the time, everyone's like, man, your cards are worthless. So that was the one I was like, I am playing this card. I'm putting all my money on this moment. Um, I've got to share this story with you because uh, last year, I think it was July 5th, the weekend of July 4th, uh, the holiday weekend, uh, LA had two pretty large earthquakes. And um, yesterday was in theaters and coincidentally, Robert and I on in different locations were watching yesterday when like a seven point something earthquake hit. Seven point so one, I think. To we keep it we consistent. weren't sure if uh, the Beatles existed after we watched the movie because there was this massive earthquake. Was first off, it's it's a quite an undertaking to write a film based on the Beatles. I can't even imagine what the the hoops they had to jump through to do that film. But coming on as the composer. Was that nerve-wracking for you to write music alongside the Beatles? I mean, that job was insane because I was doing, like, everything musical on that film, like, which is the mad, like, Danny got me in and he was like, right, really early on. He was like, I'm doing this film. He explained to me. I was like, this film sounds great, but, you know, like, what am I going to do? Like, like, I, like, you know, you've got these Beatles songs, great. I love the Beatles, but, you know, I'm a film composer. And he's like, no, I want someone to take the, um, this actor I want to use. I want you to work with him. And like, I want you to turn him into like a pop star and like work to make him become the character in the film. Mm. And I was like, uh, okay, great. But like, that is not what I do at all. Like, and I actually like really broke down everything I'm good at and everything I'm bad at to Danny. I'm like, I can do this. Well, I, people think I do this. Well, I can't really do this that well, but, but don't tell anyone this I cannot do. Right. I can't. And so I spent a long time trying to convince Danny that I was the wrong person for the job, which is a, kind of a terrible thing to do, Danny. Cause he goes, this is exactly why I want you because you'll look at it differently. You'll, you'll, you will approach this film in a, in a way. I don't want someone who's like slick 
Radus trained or like someone who's like, you know, I want someone who's going to look at this whole thing differently. So I was like, okay, look, I like literally cannot like do this. So I said, I want to bring a friend of mine in who's a guy called Ardem Ilhan, who's a great composer as well. He just did Avenue Five um, for um, uh, Amanda Nucci, which is on HBO. He's yeah. like a really, old, he's like a super old friend of mine. And we've always talked about trying to do something together. So I was like, look, do, do this with me because he's done like performing live. You know, I'm a, I can't sing, I'm terrible. I can't perform. <laughs> like my rhythm's rubbish. Um, uh, so we worked together early on at just, just working with Himesh Patel, who plays Jack. And we did so much like insane behind the scenes stuff. We, we got a band together for him. I mean, we, we did everything from like going around guitar shops to help him find his guitar. Mm. Like which guitar you feel most comfortable with uh, to like getting a band for him. All this stuff you don't see anywhere in the movie that was all just behind the scenes work to like get him into the role of the character and get him like um like confident yeah well as robert always points out when musicians are playing on screen it's very obvious if they're not comfortable or used to looking like they play in a band or are performing well the thing is danny also didn't want to do any pre-records anywhere he wanted it all to be live i was like uh this is a this is very 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 bad idea danny's like no it's exactly what i want this is what we're doing so i'm like okay and himesh i gotta say was like phenomenal he worked so hard and was he musical to begin with or was he yeah, a guitar player he'd done a bit he'd done some guitar and piano but like not really it wasn't you know like danny put a, like took a really big chance in, in like for someone who is like the center of the whole film and that's what's so great about Danny is he'll just be like, right, I feel this. Let's just do it. And like, you know, it could have really gone wrong, but it didn't. And, you know, we did stuff like one of my favorite things is we built, we had to rehearse in this big building and um, boring, like boring building. And we, I was like, this is a really terrible place to like play music in every day. So we got the art department to turn his little rehearsal room into, into Jack's bedroom. So we got a bed in there. We got hi-fi, piano. We put posters all over the wall. It was really cool. It was a really nice place to hang out. So we'd hang out there, me, Adam, and Himesh, and we'd work through the songs. We had to write Himesh's bad songs, which was really good fun, <laughs> uh, like right. Summer Song, Rock This Road. Um, we had to like uh, work on all the live performances, work on setups, work on like how we were going to help stage those, rehearse them. Uh, everything from what kind of color guitar it was it was nuts it was like and then at the same time i also had to score the movie which was kind of insane because it was like you've got to do something that feels like in the world of the beatles but isn't the beatles you did quarterly um, quarterly there's a lot of it's almost like george martin arrangements without the vocals sometimes i listen to it and it's sort of this could be a beatles song with just the strings from the Beatles song. There's something yeah. quarterly that's very Beatlesque, and you nailed it. Yeah, like try to approach it. Like I have a really great mix of this guy called Sam McCurl, who I've worked with ever since Man from Uncle, and um, he also weirdly uh, his two main people he works with are me and the Beatles, which is super <laughs> mad. 
So he does all the Beatles, like he's doing Abbey Road at the moment and he does all the sort of reissues, like the remixes and the Atmos stuff. And he's like super deep in Beatles world. He's like one of the only guys the Beatles would trust. It's mm. like him and Charles Martin work together. So I had someone on my team who knew everything about everything to do with the Beatles. So I was like, let's try and approach this as if like the Beatles are scoring this movie. Like what, what would their techniques and how would they work? Like that's what I try. I, I tried to not make it like his Beatles pastiche music. It was like, let's <laughs> think how would they score it? What, you know, how would they record the drums? How would they like jam? And so I try to work that way. But there's also like one of my favorite things about that whole movie is like a nerdy fact is that uh, having worked with Danny before, I know that Danny loves lo-fi and punk and anything that is not, he doesn't like slick Hollywood. Basically he likes the complete opposite. So very early on, I had this idea of trying to write the whole score on like uh, voice memos on iTunes, which was one of my crazy ideas of like trying to do on my iPhone all on voice memos because I, I, was, I was like saying, this guy's a singer-songwriter. So, you know, a lot of singer-songwriters jot their ideas down on voice memos and it's got a really kind of crappy but like really interesting sound to it. So early on, I, my first genius idea, uh, there's inverted commas from mm-hmm. people on the audio there. <laughs> big inverted commas was uh, to try and do the whole score on my iPhone voice memos. Mm. Uh, now, very quickly, I realized this wasn't a genius idea at all. It was a pretty rubbish one, but <laughs> the moment when he goes to um, see yeah. a certain per- certain fisherman, I don't want to give the film away. After he does help, he drives to the Dorset countryside to go see this fisherman. And there's a piece of guitar music. That music was recorded on this iPhone, which I, obviously on the audio you can't see, but I'm just going to show you how fucked up it is. <laughs> oh, it's the, the. It's literally held together with sellotape, and I recorded it. It looks the, like the Spider Verse edition. It's all cracked. The screen looks like a spider web. Yeah. I recorded it on this, like this very phone, uh, on voice memos, and that is what you hear in the film. Like you don't hear it, like it hasn't been re recorded or like fancy fancied up at abbey road it's off that voice memos and that's one of the things i'm like most proud of was that i managed to get in a massive hollywood universal movie three two two to three minutes of film score that was recorded on my phone in my flat you know the music executive at universal is going to hear this and call you and say uh did we uh pay for that cue that you did on an iPhone because we had Abbey Road booked that day. But that's one of the things that's great. You know, the Beatles, you know, the Beatles approach was experimental and it was, you know, they're a great band to have that, that world to work within, you know, like, you know, uh, revolution number seven, sorry, revolution number nine, you know, like very experimental. So even things like radio static and old recordings, trying to corporate, corporate those kind of ideas into the score. Like, I, I kind of want to get the soundtrack out or something, like the score out. I've just been so busy, and there was, like, sort of weird. There's no score album from yesterday? There should be at some point. I've just, like, we couldn't so. do it at the time. because I And I then had to, after I did that, I then had to go and record and produce the entire, like, concept album. Like, all through that right. process as well. I was like, we should be doing an album with this. And everyone was like, no, 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 we don't need to do that, which I found a bit weird. And then at the end, they were like, oh, shit, we need an album, like, uh, so that was like a whole other project of like try and make what is billed in the movie as the greatest album of all time. Was Paul McCartney yeah. involved in any of uh, the music work in the film? 
uh, uh, aside from obviously the the songs <laughs> no, the beatles the beatles are like involved in terms of like they gave permission they're very much aware of the project apple were like kind of involved but it was like not you know they were not involved with the process of making the movie uh not like more, bohemian rhapsody the way queen was no this is very on. different yeah this is very different to that and like rocket man it was like this is like a, this is like a tale with the beatles at the core rather than the beatles story um interesting but yeah beautiful doing that album was insane as well because that's like that was like a different project to just scoring the movie so that movie i had to like score the movie i had to like do all the music production uh had to do all the kind of weird live on set activity stuff and then i had to make this album at the end well we hope that album gets released at some point yeah that'd be great well, the score album come out the the kind of commercial album is out um and it didn't like i thought it's gonna sell a gazillion copies and it hasn't so my second well, half ye is still sadly sad but i'm very proud of the album and please give the album a listen in order because i spent ages on the ordering i always spend ages on the ordering i don't think anyone cares well i think one of the takeaways from today is that your attention to detail is second to none yeah now i know for everything that you do going forward and of course i going to expect it from what i've listened to but i'm just excited by the level of creativity daniel i just think it's really truly makes film composers shine in a way just to understand that that you're thinking that hard about the sounds you make and the way it's done and i can't say that every film composer does it to your level even if it's only for the one percent yeah yeah i want (laughs) to believe that they are sampling uh bottles with funny pencils and turning that into magnificent academy award-winning scores we feel lucky just to get you during this little crisis to get you on our show so i appreciate the fact that you came on today and uh i know for all our listeners See, that's your crowd outside, the London crowd saying, we want to thank all health workers and Daniel Pemberton. One is slightly less important than the other there. <laughs> uh, Daniel, thanks again for coming on the show. A reminder to our listeners, subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us. There's a number of ways. Instagram, score movie, Twitter, at score the podcast, Facebook, score a film music documentary, and send us your questions. Score the mailbox at epicleft.com. Composer Carol. Thank you so much. And uh, Daniel, be safe. You too. And uh, we'll see you next time. Okay, thank you. Hey, SCORE listeners, we're so grateful for the support of Spitfire Audio. They collaborate with people like Hans Zimmer and the Bernard Herrmann Estate to build sample libraries that elevate your music. You're about to hear a musical demo from the Olafur Arnold's Stratus Package to hear what some of the different sounds sound like. As an exclusive to SCORE listeners, Spitfire is offering 20% off your first order. That's good for over 50 of their libraries. I'd check it out because it's exclusive to our listeners of SCORE, the podcast. Yeah, just go to SpitfireAudio.com, enter the promo code SCORE2020 so they know we sent you, and check out this cue from the Olafur Arnold's Stratus Package.
Again, go to spitfireaudio.com. Use the promo code SCORE2020 to save 20% off your first order. We will see you next week here on Score the Podcast.